I want to, again, welcome everyone, all of our school families and all of our faculty. Uh, if you are visiting with us, uh, you'll have to uh, catch up really, really fast uh, because we've been walking through the book of Daniel, so you've got eight chapters to catch up in about 38 seconds. Uh, no, we're, we're going to continue this morning studying the book of Daniel. Uh, we've been looking at the last several weeks, we've been looking at at these prophecies about goats and bulls and horns and all this kind of fun stuff. Uh, well, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 this morning. Daniel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. As you're turning there, I want to remind you at Redeemer Baptist Church, our desire is to lift up Jesus, to live in obedience, and to love the world. That means that in everything that we do, we're going to strive... To, to exalt the name of Jesus above everything else. That from our preaching to our teaching to uh, the way we do uh, education to the way that we, uh, we have our fall festival. That every aspect of our uh, ministry is designed to exalt the name of Jesus. And then to live in obedience that our desire, we are striving, not that we've accomplished it as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, but we are striving to live in obedience to God's word. And then in kind, to love the world, that God has called us to love those who are in the world just as Christ loved. And so that is our desire, to, live up, to lift up Jesus, to live in obedience, and to love the world. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the Median descendant who was made king over the kingdom of the, Chalde- of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed the books, the numbers of years, which was, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, who have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belonged to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who are nearby, And those who are far away all live in countries to which thou hast driven them out because their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servant, the prophets. Indeed, all of Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice, so that the curse has been poured out upon us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he spoken against us and our rulers who ruled us, to bring us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven... There has not been done anything like, was, like which was done to Jerusalem. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. 
by turning from our iniquity, giving attention to thy truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all of his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. Let's pray. God, as we see this prayer of Daniel, Lord, may we be convicted of sin. May the callousness of our heart be pierced by the double-edged sword of your word. And may you find our hearts contrite before you this morning. Lord, may you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me catch all of you up on where we are in the book of Daniel. Daniel is writing in a time in Israel's history which is post-exilic. And everybody says, oh, okay, now now that makes sense, right? Uh, There was a time in Israel's history uh, during uh, the monarchy or during the monarchical reign where they had a bunch of different kings. This is where you have kings like Josiah, kings like Hezekiah, things like uh, King Ahaz, all of these different kings that reigned. This is also during the time of, of King David and King Solomon. We had, all, we had what was called the monarchical reign, the time of the kings. And this is chronicled in the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. This is the time of the monarchy. This is whenever Israel is being reigned and being governed by kings. After Solomon, there was a divided kingdom. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom composed of about ten tribes. The southern kingdom composed of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. God warned Israel. He said, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, then I am going to raise up enemies and they're going to come in and they're going to destroy you. Well, Israel thought that God was just joking, and so they said, we're not going to surrender ourselves. We're not going to uh, place ourselves under obedience of the Lord. We're going to continue to rebel and serve foreign gods. So God gave the Israelites, he gave the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, into the hands of their enemies. In uh, uh, around 700 B.C., uh, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and in 587 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, fell to the Babylonians. And so Daniel is written after that has taken place, after the exile. And so now Israel is no longer governed by Israel. They are under the oppression and under the rule of the Babylonians. And the book of Daniel chapter 9 picks up in a very interesting, chapter 9 verse 1 is a very interesting passage because chapter 7 and chapter 8 we see these prophecies. And if you go back and you look at Daniel, the first chapter, verse in chapter 7 and the first verse in chapter 8 it tells us that this is under the reign of the babylonians chapter 7 says in the first year of belshazzar the king of the babylonian uh and then chapter 8 says in the third year of the reign of belshazzar the king uh and so we see that chapter 7 and chapter 8 took place during the babylonian reign chapter 9 however if we look at the beginning of chapter 9 it says in the first year of darius the son of Ahasuerus, the me of Median descent. So now Babylon has been conquered by the Persians and the Medes, and they they come together and they form one, one kingdom. And so the Medes and the Persians have taken over Babylon. And so this is the setting that we get for Daniel chapter 9. And I say all of this because it means something. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, tells us, in the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, observed in the book of Numbers 
in the book of the numbers of years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely seven years. What Daniel's saying in verse 2 is, I was reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And what Jeremiah prophesied has now taken place. Let's see Jeremiah's prophecy that Daniel was reading. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Many of us read this, this passage and we put it on graduation invitations and we put it on, on uh, plaques and we say, well, this is for us. This is for us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. But it was actually for Israel before it was for the graduates. It was for Israel before it was for your child on their 16th birthday. This verse, yes, it has application, but we must understand the context for which it was written. Jeremiah chapter 10, 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord to Judah, or to Israel, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good work to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. What is taking place as the Medes and the Persians take over, Israel has suffered under exile through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians and now God's wrath and God's God's judgment is coming to an end. And during the Persians, during the reign of the Persians, God will allow men like Zerubbabel, men like Ezra, men like Nehemiah to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. And so that's what Jeremiah 29 is speaking of. And so Daniel was reading this. And in the first year of the Persians, he's, he's, there's, there's hope. No longer are we going to continue to suffer exile, but God is going to redeem His people. God is going to restore us to, to the glory that we, once, that we once experienced. And so that's where Daniel is. We learn through these first two verses that God is faithful to His Word. He is faithful to His Word, and what He says will come to pass. He told us in Jeremiah that Israel will suffer 70 years under Babylon. And how many years did Israel suffer under Babylon? 70 years. God is faithful to his word. However, Daniel chapter 9 interrupts this statement of, of Daniel. And normally what we see in Daniel is we see prophecy interpretation, prophecy interpretation, prophecy interpretation. But Daniel chapter 9 interrupts that, that paradigm. And we get a prayer from Daniel. And this prayer gives us insight into Daniel's life. It gives us insight into the God whom Daniel served. It gives us insight into how we ought to respond to our God. Look at Daniel. Let's flip back over to Daniel chapter 9. And let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Verse 3. He said, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel comes humbly before God in verse 4, and he says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Alas, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandment. I want to stop right there because Daniel understood who he was addressing. 
So oftentimes we address God as if he were Santa Claus in the sky. We come to God and we say, okay, God, I've got, I've got this grocery list of things that I need you to do. I've, I've got my electricity bill coming up. I've got the mortgage due. My kids' report cards coming out next week. I've got uh, you know, this, this problem at work. My, my grandma's got cancer. We, we come to God with the grocery list and we say, okay, fix my problems. Notice how Daniel approaches God. He understands the greatness of the God whom he's approaching and whom he is interceding and whom he is bringing his supplication to he says alas O lord the great and awesome god who keeps his covenant that that god is one who inspires all that that daniel trembles before god yet he is also a god who keeps his commandments a god who who keeps his word a god who is faithful a god and so so daniel understands that God is worthy to be worshipped. You know, all throughout the Psalms, we see this phrase over and over and over again. Psalm 18, verse 3, that God is worthy of our praise. That He is worthy of our worship. Psalm 96, verse 4, tells us that God is worthy of our praise. That God is worthy of our worship. That He is great and greatly to be praised, that He is to be feared above all other gods. Psalm 145, verse 3, again, utters this this same message, that God is great, and that He is highly, and He is to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. All throughout the Scripture, we see this idea that He and He alone is worthy to be praised. And so oftentimes, I think we as a church, we as a people, fail to realize how great and how awesome our God is. Before Daniel begins his supplication, before he begins to ask God anything, he says, God, you and you alone are worthy to be praised. Let me stop for just a moment and realize how great you are. Let's look a little more closely at Daniel's prayer. He begins in chapter 5 by recounting Israel's gross transgression of God's law. He recounts how Israel has sinned and committed. Look at verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and thy ordinances. Now I want to point out that Daniel uses a personal pronoun in the first person. Did everybody catch that? He says we. Now Daniel's in exile because of the actions and the, the transgression and the sins of his fathers and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers. It's generation after generation after generation of idolatry, of immorality, of, of playing the harlot with, with foreign gods that God finally said, enough is enough. And so Daniel could have gone to the Lord and he could have said, God, Israel has, has done this evil in thy sight. They have transgressed your law. The, my forefathers and, and their fathers and my ancestors have done all this, this wickedness. And now we are suffering the consequences of their sin. But that's not what he said because Daniel understands his own depravity. Daniel understands his own heart that, that the problem is not with Israel, but the problem is with us. It's so easy to cast the blame on someone else. In fact, that's America's national pastime. It's transferable blame. You know, it's not, it's not 
It's not my fault that my children don't know the Lord, that my children have problems with substance abuse, or, or uh, that, that my children make bad grades. They're just running with the wrong crowd. It's not my fault that, that I'm not excelling at work. You know, we pass the blame. We say, my, my boss has it out for me. You know, somebody else, it's always somebody else's fault. You know, it's not the Democrats' fault that, that the economy is in the shape it's in. They inherited it from the Republicans. It's not the Republicans' fault that, that the economy and the, the, the world is in the shape that it's in. The Democrats are in office. doesn't matter what, what level you look at, whether you look at the highest governmental level, whether you look at the lowest level of, of, of the family. I know that I've got three children, and whenever something's broken at my house, it was always somebody else's fault. I asked my, my, my 10-year-old, what happened? Nicholas did it. I asked Nicholas, what happened? Anna did it. I asked Anna, what happened? Daniel did it. Somebody's always to blame, and it's never the person you, you, you address. As teachers, we see this every single day. Every single day. You, you, you walk in, who was talking? And immediately, 38 fingers go pointing somewhere else. Nobody's ever responsible for what they have done. Well, notice, Daniel had the opportunity to pass the buck. He had the opportunity to shift blame. But what does he not do? He doesn't shift blame. He takes responsibility for his own sinful heart because he understands that he is a sinner. He says, he says in verse 5, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted, uh, acted wickedly. We have rebelled and turned aside from thy commandments and thy ordinances. Moreover, we have not, verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke thy name to our kings and our princes. And, our, and we see this, this idea of we over and over. Daniel taking ownership of the iniquity and the consequences of his sin. He begins by recounting Israel's gross transgression. But look at verse 9. He spends four verses talking about how wicked Israel is. But look at verse 9. To the Lord our God, belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him in the hebrew this word compassion and forgiveness are plural what the author is saying is multiple acts and multiple ideas of compassion that god is rich in compassions and that god is rich in forgivenesses it's just that's bad english so we can't translate it like that but what the author is saying is that while our iniquity and our wickedness and our transgression is, is, is innumerable, your, trans, your forgiveness of that transgression, your grace and your compassion poured out upon us is even greater. You know, the scripture tells us that where sin abounds, so grace abounds that much more. And God, while Israel has, has transgressed God's law and played the harlot, that God is rich in grace and rich in mercy. But look at what he follows that with. He reminds Israel that God is faithful. That God is faithful. And we sing, How great is thy faithfulness, Lord God unto me. Morning by morning I see new mercies. And we sing about great is thy faithfulness. But I don't think that we really understand the totality of, of the faithfulness of God. If he is faithful to be gracious and he is faithful to honor his word, then he is faithful to honor his word. 
and he is faithful to honor his word, then that must mean that he is faithful to honor his word in judgment and justice just as much as he is faithful to honor his word in forgiveness and grace. And this is where we see Israel in. Why is Israel in the situation they're in? It's not because God is rich in grace and rich in compassion and rich in mercy, but because God is faithful to his word. Because he said, if you won't turn away from your sin and you won't turn away from your idolatry, then I, you leave me no choice but to exercise justice and judgment. Israel understood that God is faithful to his word and he's faithful even in his judgment. I want us to hear the greatest indictment against Israel in this prayer. And it wasn't that Israel was a sinner. It wasn't that Israel was idolatrous and served foreign gods. It wasn't that Israel was, was an immoral people. Look at verse 13. This is the greatest indictment against Israel in this whole passage. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving our attention to the truth. The greatest indictment was not that Israel is suffering the consequence of sin. The greatest indictment was not that Israel had served other gods. And if you go back and you read the book of Judges, you see that Israel did some serving of other gods. That they served the gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Jebusites. That, that, that they weren't content just serving one foreign god. That they wanted to serve them all. And that they were going to, they were going to, if, if we're going to sin, we're going to, it's either go big or go home. We're going to do it right. We're going to, if we're going to be idolatrous, we're going to be idolatrous to the nth degree. And they were. And that's not the biggest indictment. The biggest indictment is that, is that when, when God revealed sin, that you never turned. You never cried out for mercy. We tell our, try and teach our children that they're going to get in more trouble when they continue to perpetuate the lie and continue to deceive themselves. If if they get in trouble, they get in trouble. They're kids. That's what they're supposed to do. And whenever mom and dad catches them and we ask them the question, you know, did you, did you do whatever it is you weren't supposed to do? And they say, no, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. You must, you must have somebody else. And they're the only kid home. And so you walk in and, and the, the, the house is a wreck and you say, Nicholas, did you do this? No, not me. And you say, well, Daniel's at a friend's house playing, and Anna's at grandma's house, and I know I didn't do it, and I know my wife didn't do it, so there's not many options, so you ask him again. You say, Nicholas, did you, did you make this mess? No, oh, not me. I know I'm not supposed to eat in the living room, Mom. It wasn't me. And then a few minutes later, you say, Nicholas, you know that if you lie, you're going to get in more trouble. Uh-oh, oh, Mama, not me. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. But eventually... You say, okay, Nicholas, I know that you did this, and you explain the logic, and immediately his head falls, and he begins crying, and he says, but I didn't want to get in trouble, and he begins to cry, and he begins, and he gets in more trouble for lying than he does for eating in the living room. Hey, in the living room, clean up your mess, and don't do it again, but now we've got to We've got to spank him. We've got to discipline him. We've got to understand that, that, that that's wrong. And this is where Israel is. 
they have generation after generation after generation, they have done evil and wickedness in the sight of God. And Daniel says the greatest indictment in verse 13, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 13, their greatest indictment is that they have not sought the favor of God. If they would have just come to God before the Babylonians had come in and said, God, we repent of our sin, we turn. That's what 2 Chronicles 7.14 is all about. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will hear the land. Church, hear this now. You are in a circumstance, you're in a situation, most probably because of sin in your life. Most probably because you've not lived obedient to God's word. And, and, and your life is, is falling apart and, and, and there is things just aren't going well. And God is crying out to you. He's saying, church, hear my words. Humble yourself. Turn from your wicked ways. Seek my face and I will hear from heaven and I'll heal you. I don't want to discipline you. I don't. The scripture tells us that God abounds in loving kindness and compassion, but judgment is his strange work. That he does not delight in judgment. That he delights in grace and mercy and compassion. That he abounds in loving kindness. And that judgment is his strange work. And this is where God was with Israel. He says, if you will just humble yourselves and cry out to me, I want to forgive you. I want to heal you. I want to restore you. This was Daniel's indictment against Israel. They never sought the God of mercy. Could God say that of us? Have we cried out to God or have we said, you know what, I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to stop whatever it is I shouldn't be doing and I'm going to start doing whatever it is I should be doing. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to go get all the books I need to get to read. I'm going to go talk to all the people I need to talk to. I'm going to do it on my own. God says, no. Cry out to me. You can't do it on your own. It's in, in, in Romans chapter 8, go with me if you will there. I want us to see this. Romans chapter 8. So oftentimes we think that, that, that if we just try harder, we can be more righteous. If I just pray longer, if I just have more faith, then, then, then maybe I can do it. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh, have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life. Verse 7. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, and it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. The reason you can't fix your life on your own is because you can't fix your life on your own. You are powerless to do so. We do not have power over sin in and of ourselves. We do not have power over death in and of ourselves. There is only one who has power over sin and over death, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one who has power over sin. Only one who has defeated sin once and for all, and that is Jesus. Church, cry out to the God of mercy. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3, and I want you to hear how Paul describes 
our God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He starts off saying that, that we were by nature children of wrath. And then in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by the grace which you have been saved, and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the ages that are to come, that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does God want to transform you? Not because He wants you to be better than everybody else, but because He wants you to be able to give a testimony that what I could not do on my own, God did in me through Christ Jesus. What I could not be set free from, God did in me through Christ Jesus. What I could not overcome, God did in me through Christ Jesus. And that we would be a testimony of His glory, of His grace, of His riches, abounding in us to all those around us. That is the power of of the gospel. That we'd cry out to God. We would beseech the God who is rich in mercy and say, God, fix it. I can't. One of my favorite things about having children is that there's an age that they think dad can fix anything. They bring you two pieces of plastic that's been severed, shattered, broken. And they say, Dad, fix it. Not knowing that I don't have the power to fuse plastic. They've taken a, a, a toy gun and it's been broken clean in two. And they bring it to you and they say, here, Dad, fix it. And it breaks my heart when they get to the point, the age, that, you know what, they realize that Dad's not as, as, as all-powerful as we once thought and that, that he can't fix everything. But I'm here to encourage this church that our Heavenly Father can fix everything. He can take that marriage which is destroyed, shattered, because of lies, because of deceit, because of broken promises. And when we come to Him and say, here Dad, fix it. By the riches of His grace and His mercy, He can take those lies and He can put them back together. He can take that family situation that's been marred by substance abuse and lies and He can put it back together. He can take that life that's been severed by sin and has been marred with unrighteousness, rebellion, destruction and he can apply the salve and the blood of Jesus and he can make the foulest clean Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1 it talks about our sin being as crimson but it then shall be as white as snow God desires to redeem I want to close with one final passage go to Ezekiel chapter 36 this is Ezekiel Ezekiel was also a prophet a post-exilic prophet a prophet who prophesied after the exile and he gives us a prophecy of the new covenant he said the old covenant is is broken 
And God is going to make for His people a new covenant. And we see the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. But I want you to hear the, the nature of the new covenant. Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. And this is usually where we stop, but I want us to keep reading. Verse, 20, uh, verse 28. And you will live in the land that I gave your father, so that you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call you for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine upon you, and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, that you may not receive it again, the disgrace or famine among the nations. Look at verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your sight for the iniquities and your abominations. That'll preach real well in some of our health and wealth churches won't it that we will loathe ourselves why because of our sins and our abominations so oftentimes in this in this world of self-esteem that we live in we're not taught to hate the sin that indwells within us we're not taught according to God's scripture, to hate that which God hates, to abhor that which God hates, to loathe that which God hates. But in the new covenant, we're told to hate that which God hates and love that which God's love. And we see this echoed in Paul's words. He said in, in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I don't boast in anything that I have done. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I've kept the law. Of, of, in, in keeping the law, in Galatians chapter 1, we see Paul said, in, in my quest to keep the law, I was blameless. I did that. I was advancing beyond all of my contemporaries in Judaism. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I could do that which was right. But I can't boast in that because even my righteousness is as filthy rags. What Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 is, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as my Savior. For whom I've lost, suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said the only thing worthy in me, the only thing worthy of boasting in me, the only thing good in me, the only thing righteous in me is Jesus in me. And if there's anything good that I do, it's only because Christ is in me and he's coming out in some way, shape, or form. There's nothing good that I do. So church, this morning, I want to ask a very difficult question. Are you suffering the consequences of sin? And God is calling you to cry out for his mercy. The scripture tells us, that the wages of sin is death and that we will stand before holy God and we will have to give an account for the sin in our life. But the good news of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty on our behalf. And if we would place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. 
And if we've given our life to Jesus, Romans 8 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 10 tells us that all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And then we can say with Paul, I boast not in what I have done, not in my goodness, not in, my, not in anything that I have done, but I boast in Jesus Christ because He is in me and I am in Him and all the good that comes out of me is Him. God longs to, to redeem us. God wants to restore us, but He desires for us to cry out to mercy. Have you cried out to God for mercy in your life? We spent this whole day singing about the love of God. And God is a God who is rich in love and rich in mercy. But He wants us to cry out to Him. He wants us to bring our lives to Him and say, Dad, fix it. Fix it. This morning, do you need Jesus to fix your life? Let's pray. Father, I know your word tells us that we are by all accounts wicked, sinful people. That if we take a good, hard, cursory look at our lives, inside our hearts, that we would know that we are wicked sinners deserving of condemnation. But your word also tells us that you're rich in grace. And you're rich in compassion. And that you desire to redeem us. You desire to restore us. Lord, may there be somebody here this morning who needs you to fix their life. May they come and say just that. God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus to fix my life. May we cry out to mercy this morning. And may we find it full and free. Maybe this morning you've been trying to fix your life on your own. You need to come to this altar. You need to grab somebody with you and pray. Maybe you need to forgive someone. Whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart this morning, during this time of invitation, may you find yourself free to be obedient. We ask all these things in the matchless, precious name of Jesus. Amen.